Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. For things that I would argue have very little to do with actually the ground operations in Ukraine, things have changed in Ukraine. Very little to do with Speaker Pelosi's surprise visit, which may have, depending on how you look at these things, done more harm than good. This continued idea that we will have victory in Ukraine, is this the way to de-escalate? But no, the situation has changed because the Ukrainians keep fighting and the, the Russians look weak and feckless, almost deranged in their murderousness, whether it be Bucha or the situation in Mariupol. And this steel mill where finally people are able to get out. Different in that Finland, a nation that has played itself on both sides of the fence between a, a, a respect for Moscow and a respect for Europe, is now scheduled to apply for NATO membership, and Sweden might not be far behind. And then, of course, this breaking story that is now out in a couple of places that Vladimir Putin is going to undergo cancer surgery and he's transferring power to the ex-police chief and there's 9 million questions that come from this. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it is good to be with you. Major Mike Lyons joins us right now, a retired United States Army West Point graduate. He's a military analyst on both cable TV, uh, network TV, and uh, radio I I am not sure where to start, but this surgery is the top line subject here. There are nine million questions, and they all start with: "There's been conversation that Vladimir Putin is ill. Is this they they can't get away with it? They have to do the surgery now. They have to admit to the world that their strongman leader, if you will, is very very unwell." Yeah. Tony, big if true. I, I'm first kind of hearing this myself. I think that uh, every day you wake up and you, you you think about where the Russian military has been and what they haven't accomplished, and and uh, this might be the beginning of the end of this conflict. Then, because it's so much leader driven, the fact that he he's put his imprint on it from the from the very beginning and his thoughts and words. You watch Russian media at night; it's what everything. It's what he says. Um, so if that's the case, if he's being taken out here, um, you know, he might never make his way back, and, and perhaps the conflict will end, and, and perhaps maybe Ukraine even gets some of its land back. So now we got to dig into what that means. He doesn't make his way uh, back. Okay, the New York Post is reporting this uh, right now. Uh, some uh, others are getting into this reporting. Some others mm-hmm. are, are, are holding off. We're now into the deep, ugly conversation of whether or not Vladimir Putin is allowed off the operating table. This is this is what we're discussing, and it is ugly, and it is twisted, and it's one hundred percent factual. So now, for what to what extent can you break down the feel in Russia? Because the argument certainly was at the beginning was, was that man, the Russians are not 
in, in the main down for this. And we saw that there were indeed people who were protesting, and those people were, were sent to jail. We've heard that number by the thousands. You take a look at who has been uh, killed, and you take a look at this from the Kiev Independent. They have the Russian losses as of May 1st mm-hmm. at 23,500 troops, which yeah. is such a staggeringly large sum, Major, that mm-hmm. it's almost hard to fathom, except we see it corroborated in a couple other ways. Is yeah. is there are there people who are going to be discussing, or is there the possibility that Vladimir Putin, if he was on an operating table, doesn't get up from the operating table? Yeah, I, I got to think so. I mean, the, the Ukraine military is grinding up the Russians in, in the Donbass region. I, I count them losing 25 to 30 tanks a day. That's the equivalent of three battalion tactical groups. They they are running out of people to, to throw at this problem uh, without a, a larger call-up that maybe happens May 9th. We're all pivoting towards that day, that, you know, Russian Independence Day, whatever you want to call it. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, there's so many unknowns here, but the still the amount of forces he's massed there are still um, very formidable, and they still do the kind of things that we wake up every day and see. They bomb hospitals, and, and they have long-range cruise missiles that are dumb that, that hit – uh, civilian locations, um, but they are not winning in any any way on the ground. They're not firing and maneuvering. Uh, wait, I'm waiting for it to happen. I'm waiting for them to learn. Two things they got to do right now: they got to reconstitute their forces, right? But but the units that they keep throwing in, I, I think the Ukraine military is actually grinding them up at a faster rate than they're reconstituting. So that's the first thing they're failing at. And the second thing they're failing at is learning. Uh, they just they can't seem to adjust. They can't seem to learn. They continue to attack along a a parallel that uh, allows the Ukraine military to defend in depth and, and to have survivability. Izium, it's this town to the northern eastern part of, of uh, Ukraine, for example, where we were able to get information that Gerasimov was there, the, 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 se- the senior most uniformed military officer in Russia shows up there, and within six hours we have a bomb and blow up a school that we think he's at. He's, we think he's injured. But, but again, it's just nothing's working right for Russia, and, and the best thing that could happen is Vladimir Putin doesn't get off that operating table. Talking to Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, M-A-J Mike Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S, M-A-J Mike Lyons on Twitter. The Kiev Independent also has it at 1,026 tanks lost for the Russians, mm-hmm. over 400 artillery systems lost for the Russians, uh, and uh, losing 245 UAV. The other part of, uh, of this is that the, the miscalculation from Vladimir Putin was twofold, maybe even threefold, depending on, I guess, how you look at these things, mm-hmm. that he miscalculated exactly how much the Ukrainians would fight. And this is not me thinking Ukraine is the greatest nation in the world. It's me saying that they're clearly willing to fight. He miscalculated on how things would then be seen by a world stage. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's an argument to the idea that NATO feels connected. I don't think they feel that they're connected with the United States. I think they feel that they have to be connected in those European nations for their own sake because relying on United on the United States to be the leader may not be there depending on the president. Uh, being able to rely on US hardware will most probably be there. Finland having this open conversation about joining NATO, you were the first person I heard talking about this that these things are possible. But now that it is open conversation how much of a sea change is this and how much is this a detriment to what what uh putin was actually going for 
Yeah, I think it's significant, Tony. And you and I talked about this early on months ago about we couldn't have NATO to be everybody but Russia because that does create a security issue for um, Russia. And perhaps Ukraine, first of all, never really deserved to be in NATO. It was a corrupt country going back a couple of years ago and only spends about $5 billion of their, uh, uh, on their defense. And, you know, that now we see a different Ukraine. The world has totally changed. And, I, and I've, my thoughts about have changed about it as well. I welcome Finland and Sweden in tomorrow. <clears throat> first of all, the Finns have already beat the Russians once in a war, uh, the beginning of the First World War. They, they were able to hold their own uh, within, the, within that conflict there. Um, they've got a tremendous military. They spend on their military, as does Sweden, which was, again, formerly what we, we considered to be a more neutral country. But they will be additive, um, <clears throat> unlike some of the other countries that we have added that have been problematic, frankly. They, they just aren't big enough. We add the Baltic states. We add you know, Lithuania and Estonia and Latvia more or less as a stick in the eye to Russia because they, they just really don't have any kind of capability to defend themselves. But now now they want to forward. They want to have troops stationed there. They want to, you know, reforward uh, military equipment to them. Um, I think NATO's had a renaissance this last thing, and the, the world's changed now in the last two months. The world's changed, and it's all because of the mistakes that Russia has made. So bring on Finland, bring on Sweden, bring them into NATO tomorrow. They are clearly additive. The terminology of additive is, is that they provide something of of unique value, right? They provide something that is. Um, important to 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 NATO, mm-hmm. but the question would be in 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 what regard? So when I look at the situation and I take a look at how poorly the Russian military uh, ha- has done, I agree with you that one has to question at what moment does Russia become a vassal state of China. So is NATO's the need to to grow NATO now with some of these other nations to deal with a future China aggression via Russia? Is it to deal, is it to still deal with possible Russian aggression with or without Vladimir Putin? What is what is the long game here? Yeah, it's the overall security of Europe. Whoever you don't know who's going to replace Vladimir Putin. Uh, they still have a tremendous nuclear capability there. Their ground forces, we see, um, they, they, I guess uh, the estimate was about 65% of their total ground forces were committed in Ukraine. Uh, they've lost anywhere. The, the, the British intelligence says they've already lost 25% of them combat and effective. It's probably good for another 50% of them. So they're going to have to do a much more of a call-up. But, but I think, um, you know, if we're all defending each other here, I think that's the first good ways to – to get economies working together as well. So I think that'll, that'll all become part of the process. But from a military guy, the reason why I like both of them is pure geography and, and exactly where they are and what we could put there and the kind of things, um, kind of planes and the kind of military equipment we can put in both of those countries uh, that give us, gives us reach, that's right, over the horizon to China if we, need, if we had to have it. You know, Russia, so, 11 time zones is, is a problem, but, but China it gives, us, uh, gives us a leg up uh, when dealing with them for sure. Over the horizon, that is the terminology that, that, that has been used, and it was a conversation about what we were lacking in, in the withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan. Do we have an administration that is thinking forward about what happens in the global fight between us and China? Are, are we truly thinking this way, or is this hopeful thinking? Well, I know the Pentagon is, and the, the, the challenge that we have is probably in the State Department. I don't want to throw you know, kind of rocks at, at those professionals there. But let's do that. Yeah, okay, okay. So, so there's no question that the military looks over the horizon projecting 
likely a naval conflict. Uh, you know, if China wants to get into Taiwan, it's a naval conflict. China, what they've done in the South China Sea with the military bases that they've put there. So we're going to have to eventually project power if we're going to remain a Pacific power and, and world power as, as we are. Um, I, the problem we have with the State Department on, on the other side of it is it, the reason we're in the situation with Ukraine. I mean, this is a result of 30 years of a lot of failing foreign policy that that should have had happened already. Um, and, and the military had warned, you know, the, 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 the taking over of Crimea and the, the administrations didn't do anything at the time. Military movements close to the border, nothing happened, um, and, 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 you know, so on and so forth. So I'd like to think that uh, we can get the same kind of diplomacy working, but I know that within the Department of Defense they're planning on some kind of, unfortunately, potential conflict with China. The question is, can we manufacture enough bullets, man, frankly, to, to fight them and where that fight takes place? Uh, I think the maybe bigger question is, when do we start hearing China complain about NATO? When when do we start hearing China say to Finland, ooh, I don't think you, you want to do that? And uh, the other side of it is, going to the other side of the, of, uh, the nation, when do we see China saying, hey, let's, let's do some military exercises where we keep troops, you know, 800 miles in, into the Russian border, and then they just stay there forever? When do we see, start seeing things like that? Well, I think Russia is now going to become more or less a vassal state of China, and and uh, which is from a cultural perspective is just something again you can't get your your head around. But given how far they're going to be destroyed, and their economy is getting destroyed, and about how the West is lining up against China, I, and that's why I'm surprised that the Chinese haven't called the attack dog off yet, and maybe they don't have that control over Vladimir Putin that they that they thought they were going to have. Um, China always in the long game, though. So, and and they still are fundamentally non-militaristic. They so so they don't know how they're actually going to fight. China watches movies of how well the United States fights and how well we we do things in NATO and how well we train. And China's trying to replicate that, but but at the end of the day, doesn't doesn't work until you actually until the bullets start flying. I always said this in combat. Like we don't we don't we don't really find out to who paid attention back at school uh, and back in training and, until the bullets start flying. And, and still China doesn't have any of that experience. And, and the experience that Russia thought they had in Syria that they brought to Ukraine, well, look, it's, look, when you combine bad equipment with bad leadership and bad morale, you get no results. Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, MAJ Mike Lyons on Twitter. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We've got more. I'm Tony Katz. Biden's student loan payoff would cost us $321 billion. $321 billion. That's what it would cost. So allow me to say I am not in favor of such a thing. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What's going on? Elizabeth Warren is in favor uh, of, of such a thing. And uh, she has uh, put a 1,024th of her heart into this tweet. I had the chance to follow my dreams. Screw you, that's funny. I had the chance to follow my dreams and get a college education because the college I went to cost me $50 a semester. But that's not the case today. Millions of hardworking Americans are drowning in student debt. It's time for POTUS to cancel student debt. And uh, hold on, forgive me. Uh, no, it's time for POTUS. 
I got it. Am I spelling that right? Yeah, T-U-S. It's time for POTUS to tell colleges to only charge $50 a semester. How is how is that not the answer? I mean, if, if we're if we're if we're going to engage this idea of of buyouts, right? It, it, I'm I'm still writing. If we're going to engage the nonsense, it is nonsense, by the way, of paying off debt, student debt, I should say. Wouldn't we be better off? If college costs less, of course we would. See, but that doesn't play well on on a tweet. It's it's too, it's too logical. So I'll just I'll just leave the first part there. That that's all I'll do. Super easy. Boom and done. These people put the answer right in their statement. If it costs you fifty dollars a semester, then okay, that's affordable. Let's just cost fifty dollars a semester. But people made a decision to go to a school that costs $60,000 a year like a fool, in my view. They made decisions, and now you want the rest of us to deal with it. By the way, I, th- I, I love the fact that her defense of this is, in my day, the movie was only a nickel. That's... That's basically her defense. Congressman Jim Banks responding, uh, Indiana 3rd District. College tuition has skyrocketed because people like Elizabeth Warren get paid more than $400,000 to teach two classes. Now, I will tell you that is very upsetting. Very, very upsetting. It is clear to me, Producer Ari, uh, that uh, I don't know about you. I am not paid enough. You should start teaching classes. I should. Honestly? Where is there a university that would pay me to be an associate professor? Yeah, that'd be a tough one, man. I don't know. Right? Because I would be great. I, I I could teach media, or I could teach. I could. I guess I could teach radio. I could teach. Uh, I could have. I could engage in some conversations regarding uh, economics and and markets and capitalism. I could uh, talk. Uh, I could teach political theory. Right. I I, I could teach. I could teach bourbon. Why can't schools have bourbon? Right? You got to be 21 or older to take the class. I can appreciate that. I could teach bourbon. Right? I, I do public speaking anyway. It's not on just political stuff. I am actually doing an event where I'm doing the whole thing about bourbon. Oh, yeah. We'll come to your whole event and do a whole thing. We'll do tastings. We'll do cigars. We'll do it all. We'll do every last bit of it. Clearly. Because... Warren has taught me. Was was her Indian name Great Grifter? Somebody let me know. Too soon? I'm Tony Katz. All of a sudden, free speech is going to lead to the end of civilization. And of course, we need the government to give us a disinformation governance board, which came out, you know, last week. I I was away for a few days. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What in the heck is up, people? But if you follow my series there uh, on on Rumble, rumble.com, 
Uh, Rumble.com slash Tony Katz, the morning rumble. You heard me talk about the madness of it. The madness of a government-run agency to tell us what is or isn't disinformation. That we're supposed to somehow have this group of people that's going to help us understand what's being said. This is going to be part of Homeland Security. Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, admitting, oh, we had a bad rollout. But you see, you don't understand how good this is. So we set up essentially an internal working group. And I must say um, that we could, we could have done a better job in communicating what it is and what it isn't. It's a working group that takes best practices with respect to our work that has been going on for years. Mm-hmm. Best practices on how to do that work. The work of addressing disinformation that presents a threat to the security of our country. If the government is telling you what the disinformation is, it's telling you because it's in the interest of the government. Right now I have a government that tells me the foundations of the economics or the the economy is strong. Well, I don't believe that. If they tell me, if they go out there and they try and tell me, well, people saying this are wrong or people saying this aren't telling the truth or that right there is disinformation. You mean what you hear from from me? Will they be saying, hmm, that Tony Katz, he's engaged in some disinformation because I disagree with them? That's not disinformation. The fear here should be the idea that somehow they believe in free speech when, of course, they don't. They believe in their speech and their speech alone. Which brings me to a piece over at Red State. You guys know I do a video series over at Red State, DC Outsider. You can get that. Use promo code CATS, K-A-T-Z, and get your discount as a VIP. But it was from Susie Moore called A Long Way From Skokie. Oddly enough, it was the second time Skokie had come up in some conversations that I had. But the argument that Susie is making is about the idea of whether or not we as a society really, really favor and will protect free speech. Susie Moore joins us, Deputy Managing Editor uh, for Red State, an attorney, uh, a guest and and fill-in host on News Talk St. Louis in St. Louis, where uh, this show runs on on weekends. Uh, And and Susie, uh, people don't know, uh, when I run into people, the story of Skokie, Illinois in, in the late 70s. So uh, take us through what took place in Skokie and why this is such a free speech milestone conversation. Thanks, Tony. Uh, it's one of those cases that stuck with me. All right, we're going to get with Susie in just a second. That's a absolutely horrific conversation, or connection, I should say. Uh, we'll get with her. Um, the Skokie story is one of Nazis. The Skokie story is the idea that you had these Nazis who wanted to rally in Skokie, Illinois. Now, me, not a fan of uh, of Nazis, and if I had it with me, I'd be like, I'd, I'd be playing my I hate Illinois Nazi sounder from, from Blues Brothers. Nobody wanted this to take place. No one. But these Nazis, uh, Susie, and I'm glad we've got a better connection now, they want to get together and have a rally in Skokie, Illinois. Take it from there. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Yeah, this is one of those cases that I remembered from my long-ago law school days. It stuck out with me, or stuck with me, 
because it was exactly the principle that free speech is, is grounded in, and that was protecting even the most repugnant of speech. The Nazis wanted to hold a demonstration in Skokie, which is a sort of in, in the northern suburbs of Chicago, and it's actually a heavily Jewish population there. And they wanted to hold this demonstration there. And as you might imagine, the people of the village of Skokie were not very pleased with this. They wanted to see if there was a way to shut it down. So they went about it in a couple different ways to try and prevent the demonstration from happening. Ultimately, there were several different lawsuits that arose out of it. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically told the lower courts in Illinois, look, you guys didn't give this the proper attention in as quick a manner as you needed to because this was about trying to restrain speech before it happens. That requires you to take a really quick look at it. The courts have to act quickly here and not just wait for it to kind of unfold because otherwise the damage is already done. If you restrain the speech before it ever, and it's never allowed to happen, then you've done the damage, more or less. Um, so ultimately, the Illinois Supreme Court said, yeah, you know, um, this, is, this is speech that needs to be protected, even if they're going to be marching with swastikas. That's still not fighting words. And the demonstration needs to be allowed to have. Happen. So it really brings us, Susie, to this idea that though we may find it repulsive, repulsive mm -hmm. is not prevented. And what we have today is an entire society that wants to state, well, that harms me because I don't like it. It hurts me. So therefore, it can't be allowed. Two very different things. Very different things. We've gone very far afield from these sticks and stones <laughs> can break my bones concept that you and I probably were raised on. Instead, we have a whole segment of our society that def that definitively believes speech is violence, speech that they don't agree with is violence and harmful. Talking to Susie Moore, a deputy managing editor over at redstate.com. Uh, uh, the the sticks and stones conversation is is one that applies because people uh, amongst college campuses and others want to use this idea of harm. But the, the Skokie fight was a real one. I mean, there were people who were upset with the ACLU when they mm -hmm. actually did protect free speech uh, in, in the day. There were people who wanted to pull funding. There was massive uh, pressure groups, but it, it, it showed the, the strength of the nation. And the strength of the First Amendment in that these people got their way. They were able to engage in whatever uh, protest they did. And no one has thought about them again. You know, if, if we want to argue that, that the neo-Nazis are the biggest problem we have, they were marching in Skokie and got forgotten about because, well, there aren't as many of them as people like to play. When you, uh, throughout your, your, your law career or having the, the law background and being engaged in these conversations, when you bring up something like Skokie, do they, do they recognize that there is a principle in allowing people to speak, even if it's despicable? No, not really. I mean, most people aren't going to be familiar with it because this was from, you know, 40 years ago, um, 40 plus years ago. So unless they're law geeks, that sort of thing, they, and, or they, you know, lived in the area during the time, it doesn't really ring a bell with them. And that's why it felt, I felt inspired to write the article, because we are a long way from Skoku. We are a long way from this, this kind of given idea that even when it's speech we don't agree with and we don't like, that's when we have to, to, to really dig in and, and protect it. And there's an interesting postscript to that story, by the way. They ultimately didn't end up holding the march in Skokie. They went ahead and got permits and did it in Chicago anyway, but there were anti-Nazi um, demonstrations in Skokie, and it was just it really kind of exemplified the whole 
concept of free speech and why it's so important to protect it. But then ultimately, the people of Skokie, um, kind of in response to this, erected a Holocaust museum. And the Illinois Holocaust Museum now sits in Skokie. And it, it, it was a direct outgrowth of this whole conversation. These are the things that happen because rational people and better people, you know, they 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 do things to to make things better. Uh, the free speech conversation, of course, exploding because of of Elon Musk. And, and we're seeing now this move from the administration with the disinformation governance board. Now, there, there's a question of whether or not something is allowed because an agency can have something versus whether or not they would have any effect as you've gone over this. Can a disinformation governance board have any legitimate effect on how speech of, let's say, a radio host is moved across the country? You know, it can. It can. I mean, we don't we don't know yet how they were particularly expect or planning on rolling this out and how they would be implementing it. But there's the chilling effect. Remember the chill wind speech from (laughs) Tim Roberts? All those years ago, I mean, when you have the idea that there's this government body and entity that's going to be looking at speech specifically with an eye towards this information and that that could have repercussions, that's going to have a chilling effect. That's going to make people and um, um, news outlets concerned about, okay, is the government going to censor this? Are they going to censor that? It's it's just kind of a, a, a dangerous step towards the land of censorship. You, by the way, I, I... I, it took me for like a good, good second there to be like, chill wind speech. You're talking about the actor, Tim Robbins. A chill yeah. wind is blowing in this nation. A message mm-hmm. is being sent through the White House and its allies and talk radio and clear channel in Cooperstown. If you oppose this administration, there can and will be ramifications. So this goes back to 2003. Uh, I didn't get the memo uh, that uh, I, w- I was somehow instructed by the White House during the Trump days or any days to engage in ramifications. Right, right. But that was the concern being raised by the left then. And now, turnabout, <laughs> we're, we're 180 from there. So the, 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 the turnabout conversation, this push for this, people like, um, like Brian Stelter saying, what's the big deal? Jen Psaki saying, I don't know who's actually opposed to this. You would, you would get the feel, the belief that anybody who labels themselves a Democrat one way or another is totally fine with this. But as we've seen on the free speech conversation, even before this, whether it be an Andrew Sullivan or a Glenn Greenwald or a Barry Weiss, Barry Weiss is certainly not a a, a conservative. There are plenty of people very, very concerned about free speech. There's no doubt that Bill Maher and I disagree about a great number of things. We agree that we should be able to say and state the things that we disagree about. So, is there a thought as to, as, as you guys have been researching it, all right, I don't do the, the journalism part of, even though it's mostly commentary at Red State, I, don't, I, I just do my video series and try and stay out of you know, the real work over there. Uh, <laughs> has, there been a, has there been a note or, 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 a, or a thread of uh, members of the Democratic Party who still want to see themselves as Democrats and not progressives saying, this is back crap crazy. You pe- as Kira Davis will often discuss, uh, you know, liberals who are like, you're going to turn me into a conservative if you keep this crap up. <laughs> there are. There are some. Tulsi Gabbard comes to mind. Um, I know she's kind of persona non grata in the Democrat Party anymore, but she is still a Democrat. Um, you've given examples of celebrities that kind of fall into that camp. Dave Chappelle comes to mind, too. Now, I don't know what his politics are directly, but he's certainly been a champion of free speech, and he's definitely somebody who's well-known in the culture. 
Um, so you're seeing you are seeing some pushback from maybe what we might consider unlikely quarters in terms of people, you know, fighting for their respective teams, um, but not enough. I mean, it's alarming to me that there aren't more voices coming out of our elected officials, particularly on the, the right, but but even on the left saying, hey, wait a second. What is it you're doing here? Why are we going to be doing this? What is it going to achieve? And how is this even possibly constitutional? Those questions should be raised. Susie Moore, redstate.com. You can check out the article for yourself. A long way from uh, Skokie. Susie, I I appreciate you being with us. Uh, Outside of this, I must must say, because I mean, I know I've dug dug into it today, right? I know it, it, and it's it's been a a subject uh, for sure, something worthy of discussion. Um, If if I'm being asked, uh, to what extent would you fight something like this? Uh, the the answer is with everything in me, including my career. It should not be left unsaid that this is just something that is silly, something that's just pathetic. Uh, I, I I would be lying if I didn't share this as something that I thought of as so remarkably dangerous that I look at the people who support it and I state clearly they shouldn't be allowed to operate heavy machinery. These are ignorant, dangerous people that I do draw a line in the sand. As a matter of fact, I never understood why I shouldn't. I do it with communists. If you're a communist, you're, you're not my friend. If you're somebody who believes that there should be a government agency that that dictates and decides what is information and what is false you're not you're not worth knowing and i want to say this on a very personal level now i'm pretty sure it doesn't affect you right our relationship will go on fine but it's going to affect some this is a different conversation than do we as a society engage limits on free speech? Well, that's a conversation and an intellectual pursuit and one worthy of discussion, though. As I said, I find myself mostly erring on the idea of, of free speech absolutism. That is usually where I default to, but I'm up for the conversation. I don't have a problem with them. If you favor government dictating what is speech, well, then... um. Uh, it's it's not that I'm sorry we have to go our separate ways. I'm sorry that that person is so despicable. And I'm glad we can go our separate ways. Because I plan on fighting you with everything in me. What you believe in, what they believe in, what they believe in. I'm sorry. Uh, there's nothing American in that. And the fight is all we have left. I'm Tony Katz. So the markets dropped like nine bajillion points on Friday. It was ugly. And right now the Dow is down 188. The NASDAQ is down 10. But really, it's, isn't it all eyes on the end of the week when the unemployment numbers come out? Or are we past paying attention to that because we know it's not telling us the story? We know that people are working in, in places 
where it isn't registering right there. They're engaged in, in the gig economy in, in, in many ways. We know that uh, if, if you tell me the unemployment rate is lower, but we still on, on Midwest Main Street don't have people who are taking the jobs. That doesn't matter if the supply chain issue is still there. What else are you going to tell me? Consumer confidence hasn't really changed. Belief and faith in this economy hasn't really changed. But the Dow was up a little bit earlier, and and I'm sorry to see it down right now, only in that a lot of those people on Midwest Main Street still have 401ks, still have retirement ventures, retirement funds, and they'd, they'd like to see them with some level of growth. It's been a bad couple of months. Then again, their business can't grow at all because they can't get the products. And there is no supply chain solving in sight. All that talk from Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden brought nothing, absolutely nothing to the table. It's not better for anybody on Midwest Main Street. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, rumble.com slash Tony Katz. More to get to. This is Tony Katz today.